Hello, everybody. I'm Peter Giuliano, SCA's Chief Research Officer, and you're listening to an episode of the RICO Podcast, a series of the SCA Podcast. The RICO Podcast is dedicated to new thinking, discussion, and leadership in specialty coffee, featuring talks, discussions, and interviews from RICO Symposium, the SCA's premier event dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who are driving specialty coffee forward. Check out the show notes for links to our YouTube channel, where you can find videos of these talks. This episode of the RICO Podcast is supported by Toddy. For over 50 years, Toddy brand cold brew systems have delighted baristas, food critics, and regular folks alike. By extracting all the natural and delicious flavors of coffee and tea, Toddy Cold Brew Systems turn your favorite coffee beans and tea leaves into fresh cold brewed concentrates that are ready to serve and enjoy. Learn more about Toddy at toddycafe.com. Toddy, cold brewed, simply better. Rico Symposium and the Specialty Coffee Expo are coming to Portland in April 2020. Don't miss the forthcoming early bird ticket release. Find us on social media or sign up for our monthly newsletter to keep up to date with all of our announcements. Today, we're very happy to present the second episode of Cost of Production and Profitability for Coffee Producers, a session recorded at Rico Symposium this past April. Buyers and producers alike need to understand what it takes to produce specialty coffee so that it can be produced sustainably, so we convened experts to ask, do we really know what specialty coffee costs? If you haven't listened to the previous episodes in this series, we strongly recommend going back to listen before you continue with this episode. In today's episode, Chad Trewick moderates a panel featuring Rene Leon Gomez, Herbert Penalosa, Peter Dupont, and Michelle Bhattacharya on the subject of farmer profitability. Beginning with the socioeconomic impacts of lasting low coffee prices, the panel focuses on the further impacts of weakened and underutilized coffee processing infrastructure. Leaders, one producer and one roaster retailer, tell of their own actions as businesses that drive towards positive change in spite of dominating free market forces that keep values for coffee low. Together, they conclude with an example of how the banana industry was able to feel safer engaging in critical dialogue that includes the entire value chain to address its challenges which are parallel to our own in coffee. Also, to help you along in this podcast, I'll chime in occasionally to help you visualize what you can't see. All right. Uh, good almost afternoon. Um, this has been uh, a good morning so far. I think we're broaching on some topics uh, that uh, are sorely needed uh, addressing of uh, in our industry. And before we launch into a conversation, or rather uh, some, some example sharing of some best practices and some examples of leadership, um, I, I think it's important to recognize uh, that there is a little bit of personal shame in some of our roles in this industry and the things that we have been uh, personally uh, been able to take advantage of and gain benefit from while another side of the value chain definitely hasn't. Mm -hmm. And I know my personal experience as a buyer is that it took me 10 years before I realized that some of my own practices and actions and even the way I was remunerated based on my cost of goods uh, achievements um, was contributing directly to some of the challenges that I was confronting personally as I went to interact with my suppliers and my partnerships at Origin. Um, 
It's a really powerful thing to recognize, and it introduces, I think, an important vulnerability into our industry um, that we could all benefit from a little bit. And the other thing I want to say, and it's been brought up a couple times here this morning, um, is that here we are in a room, um, high, 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 high ticket uh, price uh, for admission. Um, talking about a crisis that affects whether it's 12 and a half or 25 million uh, livelihoods around the world, um, many of those people, most of those people, the giant majority of those people can't even dream of coming here. Uh, and so I think it's important to just sit with that for a second uh, and, and acknowledge uh, that we need to, as Rick and so many others have said, include other voices in this dialogue. Um, and speaking of other voices, uh, I'm going to kick off this panel with uh, Rene uh, Leon Gomez uh, from Promo Cafe. And the reason that his uh, information was selected is they, Promo Cafe hosts an event called Cumbre de la Roya in Mexico City last September. I attended, and they were presenting all kinds of socioeconomic data related to the impacts. Uh, that coffee was having, um, the coffee prices were having on the communities in the 10 countries that Promo Cafe represents. Um, it occurred to me that it was strange that that information rarely made it to the specialty coffee industry audience. Uh, and so Renee will share with us a couple of points um, about Promo Cafe generally, um, because it's a not a very well-known organization in our industry, uh, and then some of those socioeconomic uh, challenges. So, Renee. Por favor. Muchas gracias, Chad. Eh, buenos días a todos. Yo le voy a... Thank you very much, Chad. Good morning to everyone. I'm going to talk about the situation of coffee producers currently living in our region. As it was said this morning, it is a critical situation. Rick said it. A heart attack situation. Rene is sharing a slide that shows all 10 countries that Promo Cafe represents. Promo Cafe represents 10 countries in the region, from Mexico, every Central American country, Panama, Peru, Dominican Republic, and Jamaica. A substantial production of coffee, around 34 million bags, 2.3 million hectares, 5 million people live directly from coffee in our region. Mainly small producers, who have between two and three hectares, and who generate around 25% of Arabica coffee that is consumed in the world. Coffee is very important in our region for income generation. Our country's economy significantly depends on coffee, and we are facing big challenges. Producers are facing big challenges. And I would put at the top of the list the challenge of economics. A new slide is on screen titled, Coffee Production Has Lost Its Value. It lists three reasons why. Inflation, increased demands of producers, and challenges which include climate change, the aging farming population, etc. In big letters, the slide reads, the actual crisis equals no economic sustainability for producers. La producción de café a través de los años ha perdido su valor. Coffee production over the years has lost its value. Today, it was mentioned, prices haven't changed in 40 years. Nevertheless, the purchasing power the producer had has dropped greatly over the time. This is related to inflation. Parallel to this, 
We have more demands on the coffee producer every day, which they are facing alone. Climate change. Now, we see an absence of a new generation of young people who are interested in producing coffee. It leads us to wonder, who will produce the coffee in the future? Who will produce that quality coffee that characterizes our region? That is to say, this economic crisis represents, for producers, complete economic instability. I'll give some examples showing the inequality of the coffee chain. Think of the coffee value chain as individual links in the physical chain. I believe that the link of the producer is a very thin link, like an oxidized wire. And we have a sizable industry dependent on such a fine wire. So, examples we can see here. The government of an importing country, in this case the United States, received more money from taxes related to the coffee trade in the United States than the overall value received by 25 million producers worldwide. In other words, in just one importing country, we saw the revenue generated from taxes at a higher amount to what every producer in the world received. The re-export of coffee from importing countries generated more than twice of what producers received. And one very interesting example, when purchasing a coffee at a coffee shop, we easily leave our change, a quarter. That represents probably more than 10 times of what the producer is receiving for the green coffee that made that cup of coffee possible. Along those lines, our friends from Guatemala left a small card that illustrates that example in several places. Only two cents of that cup, of the total value of the cup of coffee we drank, is received by that coffee producer. What impact has this crisis on our products? A big impact. The economy totally deteriorated. Migration has increased. It's clear that most of these migrants come from Central American countries. 50% of the population in Central America is extremely poor, and 60 to 70% cannot meet their basic food needs. What impact will this have on the industry? And here, we draw the attention of the industry. We can expect a reduction in supplies. We have examples of countries with an already low supply capacity not making full use of it. El Salvador is at 30% capacity. Costa Rica, 50%. And there are already projections for a decrease in Honduras's harvest. All this is causing poor management at the farm level. It represents a loss in quality. A matter I want to draw your attention to, as we expect it will happen, and it should cause industry concern, is the behavior of the coffee consumer when they find out how their coffee is being produced and how the coffee is being managed. We feel that the consumer may finally reject this product once they find out the way the producer of the cup that they consume is being treated. I leave you with that. Chad, thank you. Sentimos que el productor puede llegar a rechazar este producto al enterarse de la forma en que se está tratando al productor de café que da lugar a esa taza que consume. Me quedo por ahí, Chad. Gracias. Bueno, gracias, René. Una consultita para usted. Usted mencionó cuando estábamos preparando para, para este panel eh, que usted... Chad is asking René in Spanish whether he's considered how this information can be delivered to consumers. Los datos, ¿qué, qué han pensado en este tema? ¿Por qué todavía no ha llegado esta información a los consumidores, por ejemplo? 
Chat, sentimos que cada vez más el consumidor está interesado en saber qué es lo que está tomando. Chad, we feel that the consumer is increasingly interested in knowing what they are drinking, and also, at this time, the producers are thinking about giving more information to the final consumer. This information, the transparency seen during the commercialization process, will be very important to create a change in behavior. The final consumer, once they learn where their production comes from and the way it's being negotiated with the coffee producers, may have an important reaction. We feel that the industry must consider this element and that they must be worried so it doesn't happen like it has happened in other productive sectors where consumers have rejected a product. Gracias, René. Eso fue como nuestra base de información para nuestro panel. Uh, now I'm going to switch to uh, Herbert Pinolosa from 575 Cafe, and his business model is a different business model um, that I think is refreshing in the sense that it is uh, producer-driven uh, um, and uh, taking and 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 managing all of the different roles that typically different value chain actors are playing and doing it all internally. So. Herbert, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, well, um, 575 is part of my farms and, and a local association we have. And we're part of this beard collective, uh, which is, in, in, in little words, an agreement built on these agreements. These agreements with who? With the people that's been not representing our coffees, right? Or we don't feel that they're representing them right. It's probably not just about price, but about the type of conversations that these people were having with our final clients with roasters and with consumers. Um, so a little bit of what we build, and it, it, it sounds kind of obvious when you see in the diagram, but... Um, Herbert is showing a diagram of all value chain roles, but organized in a different way to what we usually see. First of all, Herbert's company, La Reb, is in the middle. To the left are circles indicating roasters and consumers. To the right, there's a stack of circles representing production, harvesting, quality assurance, preparation, and exporting. All of these are circled in arrows, indicating a closed loop. We just took everything uh, to those one-on-one -on -one conversations. So everything from production, harvesting, I divide in both because, well, uh, there's a thing about this model is that it just works for us right now in Colombia uh, due to the thing that there's a lot of micro mills still on each farm. So we process, we, we benefit or process or post-harvest much of our coffees, uh, all the QA, uh, the dry milling, and the exporting. Uh, so we take all of that into the collective. Uh, us, like producers that were part of the collective, take uh, charge of that. Uh, we, we go to the dry mill ourselves, we do the exporting logistics ourselves, and we deal with roasters one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, we even have a financing uh, we call it crowdfunding, but it's not really public. It's amongst people we know, uh, which help us. And there are roasters in the U.S. Uh, helping us importing the coffees. So you can call it like vertical integralization. Yeah, but we, we, we don't see it that way. It's a little bit just us taking control of how we sell our coffees and how we move our coffees. Uh, there's a thing about the collective. Uh, the collective is called... Uh, the Real Botanical Expedition is based on, a, on an old pro project in Colombia in 18th and 19th century. 
we are not considered, we don't consider ourselves a trading company. We're not an importer. We're not an exporter. We're not a centralized mill. Uh, we're not an NGO. I mean, we don't, we don't work on that. We, as I told you, we're an agreement. But an agreement on what? That's the, that's the main question. Is that, um, we're an agreement on honesty and transparency. We're an agreement on truth, being good or being bad or being ugly. It's like, uh, we work with quality and on any step, on any, on any point of the, of the, of the collective, I'm gonna show you in the next slide that, but, uh, on any point of the collective, we tell things how they are. So, uh, if the coffee is not good enough for export, we give a reason why. If my coffee is not good enough, the collective gives me a reason why. I need to find out what to do with it. It's not, it's not built on the, um, probably one of the paradigms of coffee specialty as well. It's like, it's not built on the excess of producers. And what do you do to just skim that part, that, that top part and take that and move it as a specialty and then leave the rest behind is that no, we, we, we need to figure out a way to move our coffees. We need to be responsible for what we produce, but at the same time, we need to figure out a way how to bring that responsibility we are having in our farms to the final consumer. So that's, that's what, I, what, I, what I talk about when I, say, when I talk about honesty and, and, and truth. It's, it's just an agreement saying, like, I'm not going to cross you, you're not going to do the project of the collective any wrong, and we are all going to try our best. Our best from, from the production to post-harvesting to the dry mill itself. And we're looking all those overlooked steps in the industry. Uh, dry mill, for example, has been one of the biggest places we've learned a lot. And um, that has allowed us to just generate more income to the collective itself. A new slide is up titled Collective Sourcing. It's a flowchart that moves left to right, identifying key players of Lareb's collective sourcing model and their associated responsibilities. At the very left are producers and associations. In the center, collective. On the right, there are two boxes, one for roaster and one for consumer, both of whom are tasked with paying a correct price. Roasters are expected to feed back to producers too. So this is a little bit of how, how, how we see it. Um, basically, uh, we, we think, and I think personally, that uh, producers don't crave for price for the sake of it. Uh, probably price is not the discussion on my, how I see it. Uh, it's more about assertiveness. It's more about um, thinking what I need to do from the moment I start growing coffee to the moment I sell it, uh, to do the best possible for my revenue, for my efforts. It's not, it's not just, uh, like I said, a price for the, for the sake of it. But uh, there's something we have to consider is that we probably have the least prepared people in our countries to do one of the most complex tasks, which is grow coffee. Like farming is not easy at all. It's not, it's not one of those things. It's probably way more complicated than all of you here today think. Uh, if, you, if you read about nutrition in plants, you have to read from thermodynamics to endobotanical issues, and that, that, that includes a lot. And trying to put that burden in a producer is just too much. So that's, that's one other part, and that's, that's the initial stage of the collective, is that we, are, we have to be responsible for, the, for production. We need to know how to process, and that 
that brings another thing. It's like, what, it's, what, is, what is it to know how to process? So there's a couple leading farms within the collective. Mine is one of them, and there's six of us. Um, we're not traditional coffee growers. We are city people, honestly. We're not, uh, we weren't born in the farm. Just one of us was like, comes from a coffee growing family. And we're in a, in a position in Colombian society in which we have two choices. We can keep increasing our status and our position, just like probably elevated, or we can use that position as leverage to help our peers and our communities. And that's the two choices you can make. So uh, we decided for the, other, for the, for the later one. And um, we moved those tools and the knowledge and just to, to, to raise the bar, to teach that everyone within the collective, like how, how to be better. And how do you guarantee that? Well, transferring knowledge, uh, you gotta teach, you gotta teach them all. There has to be no secrets. You gotta tell it all. There has to be no egos. It's like all is one inside the collective. It's not, it's not just you giving the input, putting your brand in the thing. That's why we chose that brand. It's unregisterable. It's something that was done in Colombia many years ago. We can't, we can't put any copyright in that brand. And that's, that, that makes a lot of sense in what we do. And, um, yeah, that's, that's basically the agreement. So that's what the collective do. I think you can, you can see it on the, on the slide. And um, that brings us to, to, to one, of the, um, one of the case studies. Herbert's new slide shows the price a roaster is willing to pay per pound for this specific farm's coffee, $3.92, and then what that translates to in terms of farm-level income after Lareb's involvement, which is $2.175 per pound. This is, this is actually a coffee we sold uh, through the collective to a client that's here today in the audience, funny enough. Uh, it's just a washed uh, from one of our one of our leading farms. Is actually my business partner and the uh, and the collective director. And um, she's been growing coffee. Well, her family has been growing coffee for more than seventy years. And they're just I mean they're they're still living on the money they made in the seventies and eighties, which is funny enough. But um, through the collective, uh, through just increasing the quality a little bit and having a little bit more awareness on the on, on the dry mail and like the final preparation, uh, they made um, 179% more than they will make on the local market. It's not, I don't know if that number is good or bad, honestly. Uh, we just got their numbers on costs. So their profit uh, is around 25 to 30%, counting everything that comes underneath. So a little bit of an explanation. Uh, all of our numbers um, come straight from what the client is willing to pay. We take away uh, import and warehousing costs, sales or marketing, uh, shipment, uh, what we pay for taxes to the FNC, uh, operational within the project, like local warehousing, uh, QA at the offices. So my company provides that, uh, that service of like, the operational part of it. Uh, part of it. Uh, some of it is done by some of the producers themselves uh, within the within the collective. There was another slide that explained that that uh, how everyone can earn some more money within the within the chain. Then we had local shipping within Colombia, farm level assistance that it depends on each on each region, and the financing that is provided by by the third parties I told you about. Uh, the local liaison is not there because well, it's her farm, so she she absorbs that cost of. of coffee gathering and sending it to the warehouse. And the last part, it's just uh, what she earns, well, what they earn uh, from financing, 
from the percentage of the total revenue of the, of the, of the volume. So each export is a volume that, that has its own numbers and its own revenue. And uh, what do they earn for the, the exchange rate surplus? So what that last part means is basically that at the end of each export, we take all the revenue, we take everything uh, that export made and just like distribute it once again. So in that, in that sense, we can be probably like, yeah, we have no profit on that. Like we as a company and the collective itself. So that's basically like a raw Great. idea of how it works. So you guys are taking a lot of these roles that are played by other value chain actors in more typical situations and doing it yourselves and realizing that there's a lot of efficiencies that you can gain that way yeah. and value that then stays with the producers and with the collective. And one, can I ask a question? Yes. So we, as we were preparing, we're talking about uh, not every farmer is ready, suited, or interested in selling coffee and engaging with the market in this different way. Um, in your collective, has it been hard to uh, convince people that this extra effort and, and, and more attention to quality and processing, because it's more difficult every day to sell coffee and make a living as a producer because you have to have a certification and a process a different way and blah, blah, blah. H how's that working? Well, um, there's an undeniable truth that the world is changing for everyone, but in, in, in our case, it's coffee. Uh, somebody, uh, a couple talks ago, yeah, they were saying that um, a lot of coffee growers have been leaving coffee for the last 40 years. That means that they had a very good period on the 70s and 80s. Everyone within the producing side uh, tends to think that uh, the coffee is still, the, the, the world of coffee is still the same. So you need little effort to sell coffee at a good price. And that's not going to happen anymore. So I'll give you an example. Anne is that. He's been around coffee for 60 years. He's a surgeon. He has superior education, a lot of things. He doesn't leave of coffee. Their farm is subsidized by his work. And uh, so he's in a different educational level than many producers. And uh, he doesn't understand it. So it's like, well, you guys are too complicated. That's what he says. So it's like, you bring in a lot of complex things to coffee that weren't here 40 years ago. And the basic answer is like, man, this is not the same coffee as it was 40 years ago. Different. So either we change or we die. But the thing is that, yeah, the, it's, it's resilience as, in every, as, as everywhere. Like everyone is going to be resilient because nobody wants to give up to their position. But that's, I mean, you, got to, you, got, you have to do it. Like Great. somebody has to do it. Well, speaking, all of us. <laughs> speaking of changing and uh, difficult, complicated uh, conversations, I want to turn the conversation to uh, Peter DuPont from Coffee Collective in Denmark and the work that they've done to really ensure that uh, traceability and transparency and this notion of price and how farmers are remunerated has been embedded into their brand ethos. So, Peter? Well, thank you. Peter is showing an infographic published in issue two of the SCA's quarterly magazine, 25. At the top, five graphs show the output of Mexico, Guatemala, Costa Rica, El Salvador, and Kenya. All of them show a steep downward trend, with only Kenya bouncing back slightly around the 2015 mark. His slide also reveals how washed Arabicas have fallen from 44% of total coffee production in 1990 to an expected 21% in 2030. Um, I chose to start with this slide because, to me, as a coffee roaster with coffee shops, um, working with specialty coffee, with high-quality coffee, it's worrying me 
that we see five primary countries that are producing really good coffee. You see the development uh, since 1990 to 2016, how the total exports is falling. In the same time as we, from our end of the world, have seen the second and the third wave of specialty coffee rolling over, um, that clearly shows to me that there's a disconnection in the market. The market is, is not working. We value these money, or the, these coffees, but the producer stops producing this. So since we started the Coffee Collective in 2007, we have been working from the basic principle that we want to reach out to the consumers because we, th we think they are a very important part of this, this market. Um, and we want to work with transparency. We believe, uh, I have that from my own experience as a barista when I started in 1998 as a barista, uh, that the consumers, they do care about how the farmer is, is, uh, is, is uh, paid, uh, or at least it's a positive preference for the consumers if they know the farmer has become better off. So that's something we try to, to work with from the beginning. Um, how can we find a tangible element, transparent element that will show the way we work uh, and how that is um, giving better conditions for the farmers? And looking at this picture is from our, uh, the former one from one of our coffee shops. Peter is now showing a photograph of a busy coffee shop titled Consumers and Transparency. Um, you can see consumers have many things on their agenda. They come into the shop, they want to get that good cup of coffee. They have a kid they need to talk to or they have a friend they need to talk to or whatever. They have very limited time in listening to us. So how is it possible for us to talk about financial transparency to the consumer at the same time? Um, I've put up a few uh, examples of what we have tried over the years. Um, we've been making these kind of uh, in-store posters to have it up as a conversation piece in our coffee shops, um, showing for four different uh, producers we're working with what the market price was, the fair trade price at the time of our purchase, and the price that we paid to the farmer. Peter is showing some of these conversation starters. They are graphs showing how much Coffee Collective paid to specific farms. This price is contrasted with the market price and the fair trade price. In all cases, the bottom bar, our price to farmer, is at least double that of the fair trade price. That has been a good conversation piece, um, even though I must admit we didn't get as many reactions as we wanted directly from it. Um, but there was a little bit of a misunderstanding with the, these graphs that some people they thought that it was how much more expensive we were as a business. Mm -hmm. oh, but anyway, then we had a piece to pick up on and make a conversation, and our baristas could engage in a talk. This new slide has three photos. On the left, a customer holding up a coffee collective cup with a round purple sticker with white text in Danish. In the middle, paper origami fortune tellers rest on a wooden stool outside the coffee shop. On the right, a quote reflected on one of the shop's windows. Translated, it reads, you may not realize it, but while you enjoy your coffee, you're helping create financial sustainability for the farmers we work with. We just uh, recently made this campaign uh, running for two weeks, looking back at uh, 2018, trying to present uh, to the consumer, saying thank you for being part of this way of doing business, presenting exact numbers. You see the purple sticker that we put on our to-go cups. This is an example from uh, the cooperative Kieni that we work with in, in Kenya. We put in nominal terms 
the quality bonus we have been able to pay to them in 2018 because they produce such a good coffee that our customers are willing to pay a good price for and enjoy. So that was an attempt to try and dive into that positive preference that we believe the consumers have for seeing the farmer better off. Also, just on the small chair there, there's this, I think it's called origami game or something, flip-flop, we call it in Danish, uh, trying to have, that was lying around on the tables in the coffee shops where we had also this information lying there, but in a little more of a playful way, so engaging people in this way. It didn't have, like, created a lot of conversations, but we, want, we got a lot of good feedback from the people who engaged with it, but next year we'll try to kind of turn up the volume a little bit because maybe we were a little bit too subtle in the conversations because it was actually very positive, uh, the conversations we did have on the topic. On the screen, there are three iterations of the Coffee Collective's retail bags. On one of the newer bags, a section is highlighted and the text has been translated so that you can read, we have paid 286% above the market price for the high quality. Then just finally, since we started in 2007, uh, you see our first bags up in, in the right corner there. Uh, we started working with transparency in the way that we use the term direct trade. Uh, and we put that on the bag of coffee when we could guarantee that we had paid at least 25% above the market price to the producer and that we have visited the producer that year. But we wanted to have on the particular bag, because when the consumer buys a bag of coffee, they should have transparency of what they are buying, not just that they have a general story of how we do our business, but how is this particular coffee I'm buying? How is that bought? So that was how we started in 2007. In 2013, we had, we had the white bag. We still do have that. Um, but we put it, as you can see on, uh, on the text, we put the exact FOB uh, price we have paid on the bag because at that time already direct trade was getting to be used for many different business models. Uh, so we wanted to be real transparent. So we put the actual FOB price on the label for the consumer to see. And since this is a rather technical uh, number, the FOB price, we chose to also have this uh, percentage above the market price that we have paid to have that in the, in the text there. That's, that's something we have uh, had good response on, and now we'll develop, develop into the new label you see we'll be launching in a few months, uh, where we'll focus on this percentage above the market price as a quality bonus uh, and, and try to communicate that more clearly. So, thank you, Peter. It's, I think it's great to see, I mean, both hearing from Herbert and Peter, that there are different ways to engage with this traditional thing, this coffee value chain, uh, in ways that are innovative and, and pushing toward more and more information, uh, value capture and transparency. Um, Peter, just quickly before we move on to Michelle, how, have your, how is the team engaged with this information? Because in, in my personal experience, sometimes it's hard to get people to want to talk about this because it's hard to interrupt a consumer's day and all of that. What, 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 how, how does that work in your store? I think that the way we generally think of it is that, that the consumers should be able to go into our coffee shops and just get that good cup of coffee that they are primarily there for. Um, but we also want to have these different kind of transparent information there that, where we can engage in conversations when people are ready to do it. Um, and I think it's, that's a little bit the challenge because on a daily basis we don't get as many conversations about these things as what we really would hope to but we still see the effect of it because we have building slowly the brand of being the transparent 
coffee company in, in Denmark. Uh, we have researchers wanting to study what we do, our business model. We have a lot of students who wants to do their master thesis about how we do and so on. Even and the Department of Labor wants your coffee or something, right? Yeah, we had, yeah, yeah, we, the, the Danish Institute of Human Rights, they want our coffee, and that's uh, something that I'm very proud of, that it shows that we are, we are lead, reaching out to people who cares about these issues. Uh, and I think that's, that's fundamental for us, because in the last end, we're working with quality coffee, and a precondition for quality coffee is financial sustainability for the farmer. So we need to help that process uh, happening. Great. Great. So we heard from Rene about data uh, that Promo Cafe has about the countries it represents. Um, we heard from Herbert about an innovative and uh, value chain uh, sort of revision. And we've heard from Peter. Um, Michelle works, uh, Michelle Bhattacharya works for uh, her own consultancy called OnUp, but she has experience working with the World Banana Forum. And since we've heard from uh, the attorneys about the dangers and the illegality of discussing price and collusion and price fixing and anything that would result in negative uh, uh, pricing impacts on consumers, I thought it would be important to hear uh, about the World Banana Forum experience and how they got to a place where as a sector it felt safer to have yeah. these conversations. Yep, absolutely. You know, just to give you a little sense of the engagement with World Banana Forum and why that's important for coffee is because it gives us another industry to talk about, to go through exactly what they've dealt with, feel a little bit safer in that conversation, and understand how we can get to a point where we're actually talking about the price that is necessary to cover sustainable cost of production, because really that's what we're all getting down to. So what they've done, or what I've been doing with them for several years, is working on deciding on one issue, one issue that can take this conversation forward. And the one issue that we've been working on is living wages. Uh, living wages are a strong issue because they cover so many of the issues that are faced um, throughout the supply chain when you're looking at producers and making sure you're going to have workers having a decent living, um, making sure that you understand that the, the economic sustainability exists because there's enough there to achieve a decent standard of living. It creates a more secure market over a long time. Michelle is sharing a slide that describes a living wage and how it's calculated. And, and really what you're seeing in this slide is that definition of a living wage and what goes into a living wage calculation. It's a very basic thing. It's a cost of food at a basic nutritious diet. It's a cost of housing at a basic level of decency, um, meaning it's safe and it's healthy. We're not talking about living in a mansion, and I'll show you a picture later of, of what that actually looks like. Um, it's a cost of other essential needs like clothing and personal care and the health care and education. And it's the cost of, of, of a small margin for unforeseen events um, in order, if one thing happens, is that going to drive you into deep poverty? You know, you want to be able to avoid that and be able to absorb some little shocks. So we find that in banana, and this reason I put this out as an example, is because we started saying we should have a living wage. And, and I used to manage the work of the Global Living Wage Coalition, which is made up of standard systems like Fair Trade International, Rainforest Alliance, OOTS, now Rainforest Alliance, um, <laughs> and several others, right? And, and really, they have already put into their standards this sort of methodology, which is the anchor methodology of calculating a living wage in, in producing countries. And they've said, okay, we should work towards payment of a living wage, right? And so I went to the banana producers and I said, look, 
we should be paying a living wage. And, and everyone threw up their hands and said, the gap is here. Our profit margin is here. How is that physically possible? How is it even... They're, we, they're literally the gap from what is currently being paid to workers to what would be needed for a living wage would eat every, every bit of profit that a producer is having plus money that doesn't even exist. And so that sort of began a conversation that goes back to, the, to what happened this morning, which is saying, okay, we need a, a supply chain where all the links are strong. Right? And that means you can't go to producers and say, pay a living wage to your workers, and we're going to force you to do that, when, when the capability isn't there. That means engaging the entirety of the supply chain. So what the World Banana Forum did was start looking at living wages and a way to engage from retailers and buyers down to producers and, and everyone that is involved in, in the value chain and say, let's just talk about this issue. They put together a working group that said distribu a fair distribution of value and talked about that. And that working group, once we started to look at studies and data about the gaps in that industry from current wages to a living wage, that working group realized that we have to talk about price. At the end of the day, there's not enough money. We have to talk about price. How can we do that? How can we do that safely? The way that they do that is they started a subgroup on sustainable cost of production. It's not a pricing subgroup. It is a cost of production subgroup. And said, we are all publicly going to make a statement uh, to commit, and this is including multiple value chain actors, not just one group, to publicly make a statement to commit to moving towards a living wage. And to do that, we have to figure out where, what is the current distribution of value and who should take what proportion to cover a move towards a living wage if we understand a general gap. So we never are talking about setting a price. We are simply looking at the reality of Here's the gap to a living wage. Here's the proportional distribution of value throughout the value chain. And so really, this is the role that each party has to play throughout. Um, so I think that that creates a model uh, that, that is an important one that coffee can also use. It's also being used in tea, and it's moving forward in other industries. But, it, but it's really exciting to see those conversations are moving forward in banana, and they're, and they're getting somewhere, and they're engaging more people. And putting out a public statement meant that more and more and more of the industry had to sign on. They got the sense that that leadership right, that there was a, new, a move to follow. And I think there's an opportunity, too, with specialty coffee to be that leadership that the rest of coffee can start to follow, right? That starts to say, we have to be a part of this as well. And, and it is simply living wage is a very good issue to focus on because it's clear the amount. You can move on beyond that to the next categories. A map of the world is up on the screen showing different global living wage studies and their stage of completion. It shows that studies have been released for Nicaragua, Guatemala, the Dominican Republic, Costa Rica, Brazil, Ghana, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Vietnam. It also shows that a study in Ecuador will be released soon, once validated, and that another is underway in Colombia. So I just wanted to reference the Global Living Wage Coalition that I mentioned before. They've been doing living wage studies around the world, and I highlighted some of those um, that covered coffee-producing areas so that you get a good sense that you could actually measure the gap now. You don't have to do all the research from scratch. Some of it exists. You can look at what is the difference between what wages are happening and what wages we have to get to to make this really economically sustainable. And then we have real figures to talk about where we can say, okay, what is everybody's role in getting to that goal? 
Great. Thank you. So, Michelle, you said a couple times during your, 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 your slides here that one of the things that we need to see uh, is broader sector participation in these dialogues to really try and tackle some of these challenges. Mm -hmm. um, how much did consumers factor into that conversation? Because, I mean, we have Promo Cafe saying consumers may need to hear and understand a little bit more about the realities behind their cup of coffee. Uh, we have Peter engaging consumers. I know that's a part of the value proposition for you, Herbert. H how much did consumers have to get into the conversation? So, you know, I think in the case of the World Banana Forum, they, it is not, there are a number of groups that are engaging with consumers, but it is not as much that they were a huge part of the conversation okay. from that case. What I would say, though, is one of the values of using living wage as an issue to put this conversation is that some of what you said earlier, that, you know, consumers are confused. Oh, you're just more expensive than everyone else. There's a there's a communication issue. Yet, when you talk about, no, we want to make sure everyone earns a living wage, this is a hot topic around the world in every country, right? I'm right now working on a US-based living wage certification to say, can we make sure that all workers that are, even, that are here are earning a living wage, because they're not, right? Uh, it, people are getting the sense of what a living wage means. So focusing on, we are trying to make sure that all the coffee we purchase or all the coffee that we are contributing to is, uh, is ensuring that a living wage can be earned by all workers. That is a huge, tool for communicating to consumers, and I think it's not being used enough. Great, great. Well, I see this timer clicking down uh, and a red light flashing. Um, and so while I think that we could all talk for a long time about our different uh, approaches and ideas and experiences, I, I, I really um, I, I like the innovations that, that you all are, are representing. Um, and I'll just say one, I have one more slide, because it was a picture of Michelle's <laughs> Um, that exemplified what a decent living condition was. The photo now up on the screen shows an older Nicaraguan woman cooking in her kitchen. Her concrete kitchen walls are covered in soot, and she's cooking on a wood fire contained in the concrete stove of sorts. And yeah. it's not fancy. It is a dignified, decent, I mean, speak to it if you, if you yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, this is, we did a living wage study in Nicaragua, um, and this was one of the photos of someone, she was the wealthiest person in her community. <laughs> and this kitchen was something, one of the few that we could find in the community that met the standard of acceptable under our decent standard. Almost everyone else didn't. So they were all below this standard. So when you think about this, this is the reality. And, and this is not sustainable, right? This is, all we're trying to do is get people, when we talk about living wage, up to this level. That's it. Basic decency. So, you know, I think sometimes people put in their head that you're trying to make everyone rich. No. We're trying to get everyone up to just basic decency, yeah. being able to have the right tools. Great. Well, again, thank you so much. And I really appreciate, Renee, you, you, you sharing this information. And may you share more and more loudly and stronger. And may consumers get to understand it. Uh, and Herbert and Peter for your leadership and, and innovation. And Michelle for, for telling us a, a good example to not be so scared. Yes. Thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That was Chad Trerick, Rene Leon Gomez, Herbert Penalosa, Peter DuPont, and Michelle Bhattacharya at RICO Symposium this past April. Remember to check out our show notes to find a link to the YouTube video of this talk, a full episode transcript, and a link to speaker bios on the RICO website. RICO Symposium and the Specialty Coffee Expo are coming to Portland in April 2020. Don't miss the forthcoming early bird ticket release. 
Find us on social media or sign up for our monthly newsletter to keep up to date with all of our announcements. This has been an episode of the RICO Podcast, brought to you by members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by Toddy. Thank you.